You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning in. It's Lauren Lee Chen here again with Aaron and Joshua Fishman. As you all probably know, the Super Bowl is this Sunday and features the Atlanta Falcons facing off against the New England Patriots. Well, last week we brought you an episode featuring K.L. Chenard talking about the Atlanta Hawks and appropriately this week, we have on Michael Pina to talk about the Boston Celtics. Michael covers the Celtics for Bleacher Report and the NBA at large for Vice, Sports on Earth, and Real GM. But before we get into the interview, let me tell you listeners something I learned today that blew my mind. 12 years ago, in 2005, Michael Pina was living in a medium-sized suburb outside of Boston. He was a senior at Newton North High School, spending many of his spring afternoons as a member of the Varsity Boys volleyball team. Not very far away from him, a junior at Newton North High School spent many of his days observing volleyball practice and tracking stats for that team. That junior's name? Lauren Lee Chen. What a small world. Hey, Michael. How's it going? Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. No problem. It's a great time to talk about the Celtics right now. They're riding a bit of a hot streak, having won five straight, including a big come-from-behind win against the Raptors on Wednesday, where Isaiah Thomas had another huge performance. We'll come back to his heroics later. Just speaking broadly at first, what have been the biggest things to go right during this stretch for the Celtics, especially during a time which other competitive teams in the East have faltered a bit? Yeah, so I think the first thing is Isaiah and just his ability to bail this team out time and time again in the fourth quarter. I think what he's doing is it's not totally unprecedented, but we haven't really seen a late game crunch time scorer who finishes so consistently game after game in a couple decades. So that's been tremendous. And just... Brad Stevens tinkering with lineups with Avery Bradley missing most of the month. He's kind of gone a little bigger and played Jalen Brown more minutes, played Jonas Jarebko more minutes. He sent Marcus Smart to the bench, which turned out to be a wise decision. And those changes have really helped. Guys are hitting shots. I know that sounds simplistic, but it's true. Guys are really locked in. Jay Crowder, uh, IT, Olenek before. Uh, Wednesday night, he had a shoulder strain and missed the game, but he's been playing some of his best basketball in a couple of years. A lot of their games are honestly flip of the coin this season, down the stretch of games. 34 of their games this season have been in crunch time situations, which leads the league, which is a maybe a little worrisome, but they've managed to come out on the winning end more times than not, especially recently. So uh, they're playing well. And as you mentioned before, it's timed really well with semi-collapses by the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Toronto Raptors. 
Yeah, we're definitely going to return to a lot of those topics you mentioned there. But first, focusing on Isaiah Thomas, obviously, the king of the fourth, so named. He just had another 19-point fourth quarter against the Raptors. Chris Forsberg, who covers the Celtics for ESPN, noted that Isaiah Thomas right now is on track to average the most points in the fourth quarter since those stats started being tracked. This season, he's become such an efficient and consistent scorer. He scored 20-plus in 44 of the Celtics' 45 games, and in that last one, he only scored 18 points. Last year, he had a good season, too. At times, he was carrying the Celtics' offense, but this year, how has he stepped up his offensive game so much up to near MVP levels, it seems? I think he's tightened up areas where you want to see players uh, attack defenses. So he's shooting more threes. He's getting to the free throw line more. He's attacking the basket even more than he did last season. He's extremely good at drawing fouls. He's, he seems to be reading defenses even better than last year. And teams would trap him on high ball screens a ton. And that usually created issues where he would either be reluctant to give the ball up or he would give it up to someone like Jared Sullinger and the possession would kind of die. But this year, having Al Horford having a little bit more space with the lineups that the Celtics are playing and guys around him improving their three-point percentage, I think that has helped improve his scoring. But I honestly don't know what else... There is to say say about how he's doing it. As you just said, he's the most productive scorer in the fourth quarter since those stats have been registered. So obviously there are seemingly more talented offensive players that have came through the league since then over the past however many years. And he's blowing them all away and he's doing it efficiently and he's doing it with extremely high usage and he does not turn the ball over. and. I don't know what else there is to say about him. He's he's amazing. As for Isaiah Thomas's defense, the team's defensive rating is much worse when he's on the court. And despite his heroics, the Celtics are being outscored in the fourth quarter. How can he make up for his lack of size on the defensive end? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a really complex answer. And I don't I don't know if there even is one, to be honest. I mean, he ranks dead last in defensive real plus minus, which is a number that a lot of people like to point to. And as you said, Boston's defense is better when he's on the bench, um, including in the fourth quarter. And obviously he can't contest shots like other guys. He's 5'9". His arms aren't that long. Uh, he can't defensive rebound and having him on the floor. That's, that's been the team's biggest weakness all, all season long giving up second opportunities and Isaiah does not help in that way at all. Teams attack him in small, small pick and rolls late in games too, which is, I think is a reason why their defense has struggled late in games last night against the Raptors Wednesday night. They went after him over and over again with Kyle Lowry when the, the Celtics would stick Isaiah Thomas on Corey Joseph. And then the Raptors would counter by screening with Joseph and forcing switches and Lowry wasn't really able to make them pay. And the Celtics did a good job of helping Isaiah Thomas with by shading their bigs over to the strong side. But for all the bad things about Isaiah Thomas's defense, I think his effort is always there despite the high offensive usage. And, I mean, he's extremely tough, extremely physical. He does not die on screens. He fights over them and 
and really makes ball handlers work really hard. And, and he knows where to be. He gets up into guys even when teams force switches and he's up on a much larger player. He really makes those guys work really hard. They played a recent game against the Detroit Pistons where IT found himself on Tobias Harris numerous on numerous possessions and really made Tobias work. I mean, a lot of those shots, he, uh, Tobias eventually made a bunch of, of jumpers over the top, but they were tough shots. So I think when you compare him to maybe someone like Damian Lillard or James Harden in the past, guys who really struggle in the pick and roll or just don't know where to be and are kind of lackadaisical, I don't think that's Isaiah's problem. I, I think he's just a really small dude. And I watch a lot of basketball beyond the Celtics, and I would not say that Isaiah Thomas is the 441st best defender in the league. And I would also say that when you are a point guard or a perimeter defender, your defensive responsibilities are important, but they're not nearly as critical as the backline defenders and the help rotations. And it's really a five-man on a string thing. And, and last year, Boston's defense was top five, and Isaiah Thomas played a ton of minutes. He had a huge role last year as well. So he's not the, the number one reason that they've struggled on defense this year, and it's, there's a lot of different factors that go into it. But I don't really know what more he can do defensively, to be honest. It's just kind of a thing that the Celtics have to manage. That's a good point. I just want to point out that Matt Moore wrote an excellent piece about that dynamic, about the Celtics struggling on defense. And I just wanted to mention him by name because I, I didn't do that before. Al Horford, the Celtics' prized addition in the offseason, is he a leader, would you say, on this team? And what's his style of leadership? I think off the court, he's just an extremely amicable personality. He's pleasant. He's communicative. He's positive. Uh, he's one of the oldest guys on the team, and his professionalism, I think, really seeps down to the to the younger guys in terms of his calm nature. He's, he tries to, you know, promote toughness and physicality, which is kind of an identity of this team, while keeping calm and and remaining cool under in high pressure situations. I would not say he's a vocal leader necessarily. I think guys like Jay Crowder and Marcus Smart. Uh, are more when the media, when the curtain is lifted, if, for lack of a better term, at practice, and the media is able to see bits and pieces of what the Celtics are doing. You know, those guys are the ones who are yelling and screaming at everybody, but uh, in positive ways, usually. It's more encouragement, but you rarely hear Al Horford's voice raise above speaking level um, if he's, unless he's you know, anchoring the defense and calling out actions and, and communicating on the floor. But I think his presence is, you know, those things are very difficult to quantify. I would say he's a, a positive influence. It's very difficult to be around him at all, talk to him and see how you could come to the conclusion that he's anything but a positive force in the locker room. With Tyron Liu ineligible to coach the All-Star team after coaching last season's Eastern squad, Brad Stevens would coach the team if the Celtics were to remain in second in the East. He's really transformed the team in just his fourth season as the head coach. He's only 40, but he's about to get a lot more recognition from more casual fans if he coaches the East. What has he brought to the team? 
I think he, first of all, he deserves to coach an all-star team. I think he's one of the better overall coaches in basketball, let alone someone who's that young, commands respect from everybody on the team. I think he's fair to the players and they appreciate that. He's a great communicator. Since he was hired, I think he's done a fantastic job of putting guys in positions where they can succeed, not asking too much of his players. I think that Evan Turner is a fantastic example of this last year when it looked like Turner's career was veering off course. Brad Stevens gave him the ball and let him run the offense, let him create shots for himself and others, wasn't afraid to not stick Turner behind the three-point line and kind of stick a round peg into a square hole. He was okay with the mid-range shot there. And doing that, it empowers players and makes them feel more confident. You know, his sets that he runs, everyone likes to talk about the after-timeout plays. And right now the Celtics, if you look at the synergy numbers, Boston is the second most efficient offense in the league coming out of timeouts. And Stevens loves calling time. He loves calling timeouts and setting his plays up and diagramming situations where he can free IT for a three in the fourth quarter when everybody in the gym knows that that's where the ball's going or even use IT as a decoy where he last night they ran a fantastic play that opened up Jay Crowder for a wide open three. I believe there was it was under two minutes left in a very close game against the Raptors, and Crowder ended up missing the shot, but it was a wide-open, fantastic look, and it was uh, primarily because the Raptors were, they threw two guys at Isaiah Thomas, and that's all by design. He's just a brilliant tactician, and every time I talk to him or ask him a question, I learn something about basketball, so he's he's really great. Particularly about his player development skill, it seems like, and, and I know there are a lot of really good assistants, and also Danny Ainge and company do terrific work on the personnel side of things, but what do you see Brad Stevens doing behind the scenes to get these young guys playing at such a high level? Well, it goes back to him putting guys in positions where they can succeed. So if we talk about Marcus Smart, for example, Stevens has recently changed the lineup where he's decided to bring Smart, who's not a fantastic offensive player in terms of scoring at the basket, shooting threes off the dribble. That's not really his game. So what uh, Stevens has done is bring him off the bench and let him run the offense, run pick and roll action in spread floor situations, and then also post up backup point guards who are tiny compared to him. And he's feasted on that, and it's allowed Smart to playmake out of the post, score out of the post, get to the line easier. Steven's doing that, making that subtle tweak makes life easier for a guy like Marcus Smart, who's struggled in areas where some people think he should be further along. So I think just in that specific anecdote, I think it really shows how Stevens helps his players develop, even though they're in such mm-hmm. early stages in their careers. That makes sense. From a big picture perspective, the Celtics are improving every season. They're a really good team, though most would argue they're not elite. And it's yet to be shown that they can get past a LeBron-led team in the East. 
So a lot of people are raising the question, what does Danny Ainge need to do to just get them over the hump? And some people's answer to that is trade for a star like Jimmy Butler, for instance. But apparently Chicago's asking price is just ridiculous. Help us balance the concerns between getting a star like that who's already developed and a two-way player versus mortgaging your entire future. Right. So this is kind of the big question right now with this franchise. And I mean, when it comes to trading for someone like Butler or Paul George or whoever else, it obviously, first of all, depends on what you have to give up. And if I were the Celtics, I would not give up the Brooklyn picks for these players just because, first of all, if you were to acquire Jimmy Butler, you in all likelihood have to ship out valuable rotation players who have helped you get this far, who have built up continuity, who know their roles in Brad Stevens' system, and there's the potential for disruption this year with that if, if you were to bring in someone like Butler. That's uh, problematic, and you don't know for sure whether or not just adding another star and creating the trio that is Horford, Isaiah Thomas, and let's just keep using Jimmy Butler's name. If that trio is better over the next couple of years to dethrone LeBron James, Kevin Love, and Kyrie Irving, and the team that they have over there. So if you do trade, let's say both Brooklyn picks for Jimmy Butler, your avenues for improvement are basically nil. It's, you don't have the cap space that you right now they're in a position where they can almost clear up to max cap room this summer, which is obviously important. And they have trade assets. And so if you move those for Butler, then you're kind of locked into that being your core. And if it doesn't work or if it tops out at not being as good as the Cavaliers in the short term, I don't know what you do from that point on to boost yourself to championship contention. Yeah, it's an interesting dilemma. They also have a lot of guys in the pipeline, a couple draft and stash players in Yabu Sele and Zizic, and um, Abdel Nader from Iowa State is doing really well in the D-League right now. Also, you mentioned that lottery pick that they get from Brooklyn. I know that there are a lot of contracts expiring or non-guaranteed contracts that they just might get out of, but is that a really good problem to have, do you think, for Boston next season? And do you have any indications of who among those that I mentioned would be the highest priority to get on the team next year? Well, if we're talking about highest priorities, I think Zizic, who right now is, I mean, he possesses the exact skill set that this team needs, which is a big body who can protect the rim a little bit, rebound, set screens, a hard roller through the paint. And right now he's kind of thriving in Turkey. He switched teams in Europe a couple months ago and now has a big role on a team in Turkey that's coached by David Blatt. So he's playing in an NBA-style offense, NBA-style defense, and he's playing extremely well. So I think that that's a player who, I don't know if there was a superstar who came along and the team that they were trading with wanted Zizic. I don't think that's the deal breaker right there, but 
In terms of the prospects that they have that you mentioned, I think he is the number one guy who's going to come over next season and have an impact or at least improve in their the weaknesses that they've had this season. I guess it's also hard for you to answer about the lottery pick because we don't know who that would be. For sure. I think just keeping the pick in general, though, and uh, let's say they get the first pick and, you know, it's obviously a point guard heavy. Uh, there's a lot of very talented point guards at the top of the draft. <clears throat> I personally would not be opposed to them taking one of the point guards, still having near max cap room and rolling out next season with, I mean, eventually you're going to have to choose between Smart, Bradley, and Isaiah Thomas anyway. Those guys' contracts don't expire until uh, two summers from now. But for the time being, I don't think I would be opposed to, let's say, Markel Fultz being on board with however they use their cap space this summer and then them rolling over and continuing next season with the functioning core that they have in place. I think that team would be a very impressive one. Earlier in the interview, we were talking about defense a little bit, and we cited Isaiah Thomas and what's been written about him. But as you fairly noted, it's not only an Isaiah Thomas issue. You talked about the defense not being on a string at times, how they fell from a top five defense last year as far as efficiency is concerned to now being ranked about 20th in the NBA. Avery Bradley has been injured. That's obviously hurt their defense, but it wasn't very good when he was healthy either. And I know that they were going small a little bit and have gotten away from that. You did say, though, that a lot of factors go into those defensive woes. Highlight the most important ones in your mind, if you can, and how, if at all, they can hope to improve that defense, or if it even matters, given how awesome they're playing right now. So the number one issue that really can't be solved is their defensive rebounding. I, I mentioned that a little bit earlier. You know, they've kind of aborted going to those really small three-guard lineups where they would also play Crowder at the four and Horford at the five. And, you know, heading into this season, I think a lot of people, myself included, thought that that particular unit with those two, Isaiah Thomas, Bradley, and Smart, was going to be kind of like an Eastern Conference death lineup and just able to blitz teams defensively with the talent they had in the perimeter, uh, switch a lot of actions, and you know go five out very effectively. That obviously has not worked out because they got pounded on the glass whenever they went that small and the rotations weren't as crisp with Horford kind of coming in to the folds and this being his first go round in a totally new environment. I think another issue has just been how often they send opponents to the free throw line. They have the, one of the worst opposing free throw rates in the league all year long. And uh, a big reason for that is just there are constant miscommunications with regards to their side pick and roll action. Oftentimes a ball handler who's guarding the pick and roll will think he has help behind him and he thinks that they're icing the screen and roll action which means they're pushing the ball handler towards the sideline when in reality the big is 
out in space or, or up on his man. And what happens is there's a free runway to the basket, which forces help, which eventually leads to either a wide open three or a wide open layup. So that's a huge problem. Their work in space individually has been really bad, which is kind of a surprise when you look at the names on the roster. Guys like Avery Bradley, I think he's struggled relatively this season, in part because, A, he's guarding a little bit bigger players than he has in years past, and B, his offensive responsibilities have increased this season, which understandably means that he's going to uh, let and his abilities on the defensive end. He can't be as hawkish as he was in years past. And the last thing I'll say is that Jay Crowder's defense has not been where it needs to be just because he suffered a ankle sprain early in the year back in November. He came back a little too early from it and continuously played not 100%. And I think over the last couple weeks, he's finally getting back to the level of tip-top perimeter defender that he has been in years past. So I think that the defense will improve. I don't think that they'll be bottom 10 for the rest of the year or after the All-Star break. I think that they're kind of figuring things out steadily. But there are issues, most notably the defensive rebounding, that I don't think will be solved unless a trade is made. And something you mentioned earlier, with Avery Bradley out, Brad Stevens has been experimenting a little bit with giving Jonas Yurebko and Jalen Brown some spot starts and a lot more minutes. When Boston picked Jalen Brown at number three, it was a little bit of a controversial pick. We knew he would be a project offensively in in a way that some of the other available players around there weren't. How would you assess his progress at this point and around midway through the season? What do you think of that pick now? Well, I think the reason, first of all, why they made the pick was despite the poor shooting in college and the very, very uh, worrisome advanced numbers that came out. I think the reason that they took it is he's a superb athlete. He works extremely hard in every area of his game. He's mature beyond his years, takes the game very seriously. He's in the gym at night. He's in the gym after practice, before practice. He's in the weight room constantly. So I think they really appreciate that. And then I think that the Celtics looked at their roster and I think they wanted to take the best wing. I, th- I think when you have the third overall pick, taking the best player available is what you want to do. And, and there's a good chance that they viewed Jalen as the best player available. But I think if he were on the same level as someone like Jamal Murray, who's more of a ball handling guard, I think Jalen Brown takes the cake just because his versatility and his size are something that the Celtics need. And when you look around the league at who the best players in basketball are right now, the Georges, Kawhi Leonard's, Jimmy Butler's, these two-way wings who are extremely versatile and extremely athletic, who can guard multiple positions, uh, score from all over the floor. I think that that's what they envisioned Jalen hopefully maybe one day becoming. And that's why they, they took him. And it's not been the smoothest rookie year, but he's 20 years old. I think he's getting better by the week or by whatever segment you want to measure his progress. Uh, he had a 20-point effort the other night against the Orlando Magic that was extremely impressive. 
He attacked uh, smaller defenders in the post. The lineup change that Brad Stevens recently made, which effectively starts him at shooting guard, uh, he's really able to punish smaller defenders and attack the glass, make energy plays, get out in transition, and his defense has been disciplined. He stays down on closeouts. I think he's mature beyond his years in some ways, and uh, I think that the team is thrilled with how he's played, all things considered. And you also mentioned Marcus Smart has recently been moved to the bench, and he's thrived in that role, really. We all know that he is mainly known as a perimeter defensive stopper, it seems like. Every week, almost every game now, he has a highlight game-changing defensive play, steal block. He had a critical jump ball in the final minute against the Raptors last game. But on the offensive end, has he made strides to improve his game too? I know recently, at least, over the last two weeks, he's been racking up a lot of assists and really been good facilitating there. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. His vision this year has really stood out to me. Uh his ability to operate in the pick and roll, hit roll men, make very difficult skip passes to the corners. Uh, he keeps his dribble alive and kind of waits for the defense to break down or, or make a mistake. And he finds holes and he's very good at needling the ball to where it needs to go. He's not really turning the ball over a ton either when he has it in these situations and he's done a fantastic job just reading what the defense is giving there are problems though primarily with his ability to score which people obsess over Uh, he's not really that great at getting to the line he's pretty bad finishing over larger defenders in the paint which is you know that's a very big problem when you're a guard who needs to attack it down low, get into the restricted area, and finish effectively. His three-point shot has been a source of discontent among the Celtics fan base basically since he was drafted. He was historically terrible last season. He's been better this year, but there are still some shots he launches that are kind of no, 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 yes shots, or just no, 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 no shots. But he's still 22 years old. I think he's still improving offensively. He's starting to see the game a lot better. And then when you look at his defensive contributions, uh, I personally think there aren't 10 perimeter defenders who are better than he is, just in terms of his intelligence, his physicality, the number of positions he can guard at an extremely high level. Earlier this year, the Celtics throw him on guys who are three and four inches taller and he did a fantastic job whenever boston would go small so he's incredibly valuable and if his offensive game particularly scoring the ball improves the next couple years i think he just has an extremely bright future in the league earlier this season jay crowder took offense to the td garden fans cheering for gordon hayward when they were playing the jazz in an effort to lure him to the team. Crowder's flirting with a 50-40-90 season after not having a reputation at all as, as an offensive player through his first four seasons. Are his offensive contributions being underappreciated? That's a really good question. Well, they're not being underappreciated by his teammates who cite the space that he provides almost on a nightly basis. 
I think that his work ethic and his his efficiency in the gym, which is something that Brad Stevens mentioned before last night's game, his uh, obsession with improving areas that he knows the team needs. So he works on moving without the ball, catch and shoot threes, uh, one dribble pull-ups. He's not really working on, you know, running pick and roll action or drives to the basket. That's really not his game at all. And it's not what the Celtics need from him. So there are times when it's a little frustrating because, you know, he doesn't have, let's say, the post game to punish a smaller defender on the block when the Celtics get a mismatch. And that can be a little frustrating or he can't create shots for others and his handle is not as tight as one would maybe desire um but that's okay he's just a very good three and d player and we need pieces like that in today's nba and for someone to up their percentages to 50 40 90 which they're nearly at i think he's the fifth most accurate three-point shooter in the entire league after shooting like 33 percent last year which is kind of crazy He's a top 10 true shooting percentage, which no one would have seen any of this coming. So if he is uh, underappreciated, I don't think he should be. I think he fits his role in this team perfectly. Yeah, it's pretty wild for such a good small forward to be on the team. And yet there's still being rumors about every small forward star being um, coveted in the trade. But looking forward to the playoffs. How do you think the Celtics match up with the other top Eastern Conference teams? Uh, well, <laughs> with the Cavaliers, so I guess we'll start there. I think that the Celtics team is closer than Celtics teams in the past to toppling that LeBron-led team, but there's still too many holes in the ship right now for them to really come close and seriously compete with that team. And I think LeBron and the mismatches that he creates are still just so, so worrisome. I mean, for every team, really, there's no one on the Celtics, including Jay Crowder or Jalen Brown or whoever really you want to throw on LeBron one-on-one who can stop him and prevent help from creeping in from the three-point line. And that's exactly what, what LeBron wants. He wants, he, he likes to get on the block with his back to the basket, uh, work his way down, and really force you to send help. And when you do, he just whips the ball out to the three-point line where Cleveland has done such a fantastic job of surrounding him with capable shooters. So I think stopping that offense is, uh, I don't want to say impossible, but it's just highly unlikely. And then on the other end, I think Cleveland's defense has really struggled this year. But when push comes to shove, I think they'll be ready in a seven-game series. When they're at full health, when they have a day in between each game to rest, I think Tristan Thompson is a matchup nightmare for the Celtics just because of how effective he is on the offensive glass. And, I mean, that's Boston's biggest weakness. He's one of the best offensive rebounders in the league. And I don't think they have anybody on the team who can box him out individually. So... If Tristan Thompson gets hurt and like Kyrie Irving misses three games, then maybe. But but other than that, beating the Cavs is just incredibly unlikely. With regards to the Raptors, I think these two teams are just 
flip of the coin if they were to meet in a second round series, which feels very likely. I think whichever team has home court advantage will win that matchup. Both teams are really bad on the glass. Both teams can go small and, and get versatile. Both teams have all-star point guards who can drop 30 without blinking. So I think that matchup will be very interesting. Jonas Valanciunas creates problems. And last night in Boston, he picked up two early offensive fouls that kind of took himself out of the game. But he's been a matchup nightmare for them, just like Tristan Thompson. Honestly, those are the only two teams that I think Boston has to worry about. Just changing years, before we let you go, I should note all four of us are Patriots fans and were before the Brady-Belichick era of titles. We had Kale Chenard on last week, as we mentioned. So he kind of, I guess, was the Falcons section of it, even though we didn't really ask about the Super Bowl. But just before you go, do you want to provide either a prediction or what to look out for on Sunday? Sure. I am a huge Patriots fan, going back to the Drew Bledsoe days, for the record. Those were dark, dark times. Um, I used to watch a lot more football than I do now, partly that because I cover the NBA and just enjoy watching basketball a lot more. And then part of it is just a lot of various reasons we don't need to really get into right now. But I never, ever, ever pick against Tom Brady, especially in a situation like this and i think a lot of the guys on the team have uh, been to the super bowl they have experience in huge situations like this i think the patriots offense is virtually unstoppable and the atlanta falcons have not faced anything close to it so i think my analysis probably aligns with a lot of people's and that i think it'll be a very high scoring game but uh I have more confidence in the Patriots defense to maybe create a turnover in the second half that could swing things or just get to the quarterback a little bit better. Uh, so that would be my grade A analysis for the Super Bowl. And I'm picking the New England Patriots to win by, I would say, between four and seven points. Seems reasonable. Thanks for coming on, Mike. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, guys.